0: scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that, These also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him, and asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village.
1: I hope you'll leave your Bibles open this morning as we continue in this series in the Gospel of Mark. We see something that really we've seen many times before because it's a theme of Jesus' ministry, uh, a theme of what Jesus is doing during the course of what Mark is laying out before us. The unifying theme of our passage this morning is the faithfulness of Jesus not only to feed the bodies of thousands, thousands. 9,000 recorded thus far in just two of these miraculous events. Not only to feed the bodies of thousands, but to feed the faith of the crowds, to feed the faith of his disciples, and to feed the faith of a singular blind man. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that your word your spirit at work among your people would do this same miraculous work here. Lord, what we want is not bread. We confess with you. We bear witness with you. Man does not live by bread alone. We live by your word. We live by faith and who you are, what you've said, what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen, nurture, and feed that faith in the midst of the congregation this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen. In this morning's passage, there are some details that we need to pay attention to. There's a lot of things happening. This is a long passage, and really we've taken a few different sections of Scripture and read through the whole of them, reading through the majority of an entire chapter of Mark. We've normally gone a lot slower than this, right? What we have this morning is we have another passage that's similar to one that we had back in Mark chapter 6, So one of the reasons why we don't want to dwell here too long is we've seen the center of Jesus' point in this miraculous work that he is the bread of life, okay? And he's making that point again in a different circumstance. Again. I want you to look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, in those days when again a crowd had gathered and had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. And then the story proceeds from there. But we have in that very verse, the first thing that we should notice, it's probably the easiest thing to notice, the fact that this is, again, this is now on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Previously, Mark chapter 6, Jesus had fed 5,000 men. But here we have a group of uh, over in that previous passage of, of five, the feeding of the 5,000, we had a group of 5,000 Jewish men who had come from the surrounding cities into the wilderness. They followed Jesus there into what they had likely perceived was a political and military revolution on the rise, okay? And what they find when they find Jesus is they find him teaching, They're coming there as revolutionaries and they find him teaching what he always does, what he's come to do. He comes teaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. They find him teaching the gospel of the kingdom and then performing a miracle that would point them to the bread of heaven. This is what Jesus was doing back in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 now a great crowd gathers again, this time on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But this time, they're on the Gentile side. And Jesus, we see him going back and forth between uh, the, the, sort of the Israelite side, where many of the Jews were and where many of the Jewish cities, and the Greek side, the Decapolis side of the Sea of Galilee. See him going back and forth. But we're told here that just like when they were on the 5,000 side of the Sea of Galilee, we're told that the crowd had nothing to eat. This time, a crowd of 4,000. In verse 2, we're told that Jesus has compassion on the crowd. There's a lot of againness of this passage. It's like, we've seen this before. Do we need to read this again? More than that, does Jesus even need to do this again? Oh, now here's a question. Did Jesus even do this again? Now that's a question that many critics of the scriptures have asked before. Are there any real distinctions between these two passages? Or did Mark or some copyist simply get it wrong and recount the same story twice? But there are a lot of distinctives between these two accounts. Some readers are bothered by the similarities of Mark's account, even to go so far as to suggest that there's a duplication of a single account. But this is far from the case. If you actually pay attention to the words that are there, there are details in this account. And Jesus is teaching his disciples something unique in this miracle in Mark chapter 8 that required a a similar repetition. There's something that he's recording for us back in chapter 6 and now in chapter 8, that the uniqueness of chapter 8 would hold before his disciples. Let's look at some of the details. First of all, in the first account there were 5,000. In the second account there were 4,000. But there's more details and distinction than just a number. In the first case, there were 5,000 mostly Jews. And in the second case, there were 4,000 mostly Gentiles. Do You see, there's something significant already going on here. In the first case, there was a revolutionary flare to what the people were gathering to. In this case, there were three days of hunger. In the first case, we had a collection of five loaves and two fish. In the second case, we had seven loaves and seven fish. And in the end, in the first case, there were 12 hand baskets, you might call them, gathered together, remaining at the end. And in the second case we'll look at this in more detail in a bit there were seven large baskets remaining. In the first case, 12 hand baskets. In the second case, seven large baskets. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. I think this is extremely important for understanding the distinction here. In verse 19, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about this second event. Or about, I'm sorry, the first event. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, the first miracle, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? They said twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up then? And he said to them, well, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And honestly, when I look at those, I'm like, yeah, nope, nope. I'm just right there with the disciples. I don't yet understand. But one of the things I do know is even Jesus was making note in the passage itself that these were two distinct miracles. These were two distinct feedings, and there is a point to how he went about these two feedings, and one of the central points is so that his disciples would understand something. Now I'm on the hook. Now I want to know. I want to look at this more closely, and I want to come to understand what Jesus had to teach his disciples. I think at the heart of all of Mark, all at the heart of all of the scriptures, and certainly at the heart of what Jesus is doing here, is he is making himself known. The purpose of Jesus's ministry throughout the book of Mark is to make himself known. There's a fascinating thing that happens in verse six. He directed the crowd to sit down, he took seven loaves, he gave thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples, set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Jesus is in the business of presenting himself to the people and calling the people to faith in himself, beginning with his disciples and moving on to the crowds and all the persons that he would encounter during the course of his ministry. And at the center of Jesus's ministry is Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. We've referenced it. I feel like we go back to this about every other week to remember what Jesus is doing. In Mark chapter 1, it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. When he came into Galilee, he came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent And believe in the gospel. What gospel? The gospel of God or the gospel of the kingdom of God. What's the good news? And what we discover as we watch Jesus is that Jesus is at the center of the good news of the gospel. Jesus is, you might say, the king of the kingdom that he is proclaiming. Jesus's entire ministry is a ministry of self-revelation, So whatever it is that Jesus has to teach us in this feeding of 5,000 and feeding of 4,000 that the disciples were failing to understand, it's going to have something to do with Jesus. This is powerfully the case in this miracle. Go back to verse 6. I want you to look at it while you listen to me for just a moment. Look at verse 6 again and hold in the forefront of your mind the reality that Jesus is the bread of life. And then you'll see that Jesus takes himself and he honors his Father in heaven. He takes himself and is broken as a provision for the people. Jesus takes himself and is given to the disciples for what purpose? That he would be distributed to the crowds. And Jesus goes about his ministry first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. You see, this passage is about Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life whose body was broken and distributed and proclaimed and understood ultimately by his apostles who would go and bring that message not just to Israel, but ultimately to the crowds of the nations. Jesus is telling us he is the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 51, when Jesus explains what the purpose of the first miracle was, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We're not talking about bread anymore, are we? We're talking about Jesus giving of himself on the cross. Broken, as Mark shared with us in the prayer of confession, that we might not be consumed. He was consumed on our behalf. He was broken. His blood was poured out. And we remember these things in communion, do we not? We remember that his life was given for the world. And the purpose of Jesus in these miracles and his explanation of the miracles to the disciples is that we would have faith in him. And the disciples, as, that they, as they would have faith in him, as they would come to understand him, to know him and his work in the world, that they would then join with him, participate with him in the proclamation of the bread of life to the crowds. But why two distinct miracles? Let's jump down to verse 18. Speaking to the disciples, Jesus is traveling along with them. And he says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And then this phrase, and do you not remember? Do you not remember? Jesus is concerned and he's making his concern Known to the disciples in really very critical fashion. A fashion that would make the disciples scratch their head and say, Jesus has a problem with us right now, doesn't he? Maybe we have a problem. There's something that he's teaching his disciples. There's something about Jesus and about his gospel that the disciples have failed up to this point to receive with faith. Something that they failed to understand and take hold of by faith. And so he goes about teaching them both. He's teaching them both through repetition and through a specific distinction. Jesus performs this miracle and both of these miracles to the 5,000 and the 4,000 have the same central point that Jesus is the bread of heaven. And he's calling them to see that and to understand that through remembering So he repeats that miracle for them on both sides of the Sea of the Galilee. And in both places, the disciples are there. Do they remember? Did they notice? Do they not have eyes to see? Do they not have ears to hear? Jesus is the bread that has come down from heaven by which they might be nurtured, nourished. He is their provision. But then he has something to teach them, not by repetition, but by distinction. Jesus asked the disciples to remember what he's done in the recent past, back there with the 5,000. And then he's asking them to compare what he did there with what he does now with the 4,000. Let's do it together. Let's see if we can remember as his disciples. Let's pay attention. In the feeding of the 5,000, do we not have a miraculous provision of the bread of heaven for the Jews? five loaves for 5,000 men, at the end of which they collected 12 hand-sized baskets. Jesus takes the provision of the Lord that the Lord had provided and makes it perfectly sufficient for the Jewish family who were present on that day. I think that God's provision for the Jews, uh, I think of God's provision for the Jews throughout the whole of redemption history, the way that it has always been sufficient for, for that day. And he has revealed to them, protected them. He's provided for them for centuries as his beloved children. And now in Jesus, the Messiah, he's providing for them again. And he's providing also for the crowds of Israel. It wasn't just for the 5,000 who were gathered on that day. Just consider the 12 hand-sized baskets. That the disciples collect. The remaining portions are symbolically sufficient to provide for the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus isn't doing some off-to-the-side revolution. He is showing that he is the bread of heaven for the redemption of the people of God in Israel. Did the disciples not remember? Did they not see what was going on there? But then he offers this distinction. As he crosses over the Sea of Galilee, and he provides the feeding of the 4,000. And as I look at it, I see that this is a miraculous provision for the nations. The bread of life for the nations. Seven loaves feed 4,000. And when they were done feeding the 4,000, they collected up seven laundry-sized baskets of bread. The word used for baskets in those two places, they're both translated baskets because they both mean basket, but the question is what kind of basket? But there's actually two distinctive words that are used there. The word for the seven baskets, the baskets that were collected at the end of the feeding of the 4,000 among the Gentiles in that provision. The word that is used there is the same word that's used for the Apostle Paul when he's let out in a basket, a man sized basket outside of the wall to escape out of the city. This is no hand basket. It's a massive, man sized, abundant provision. And there are seven of them sevenfold abundant provision for the nations. The number seven is the number of perfection or completion. Friends, I'm not a big numbers guy. In the commentaries that I read, they were always real careful to make sure that they prefaced their paragraph about this. They're not like looking for numbers and trying to make something, some symbol. Except for Jesus pulls the disciples aside and said, did you not notice the numbers? Weren't you paying attention to what I was so clearly doing among the Jews with the 12? My provision is sufficient for Israel. And Did you not see that I was doing abundant and sufficient provision to the point of completion for all the rest of the world. Do you not see that it's the same bread of life? Do you not see that it's bread in both of those abundant baskets, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile? When I see Jesus doing this stuff, I see our Savior nurturing the faith of the Jews in line with God's revelation throughout redemptive history. And then making provision to nurture a faith that is more than sufficient to satisfy the need of the world for salvation. Jesus is a master disciple maker. And he is calling forth and nurturing faith in himself. Mark eight eighteen. It's in our passage. And it has that precious word right at the end of the verse. Remember. And circle that thing. Highlight that thing. Underline it. Pay attention to it. The disciples failed to consider seriously the works of Jesus. They so quickly, when they were reading, or when they were paying attention to the work of Jesus as they were following after him, they always became myopic. All that they could see was bread, their hunger, and a miraculous provision for a people, But they couldn't yet see their need for faith in him. Friends, I wonder how many times we ourselves become myopic. We only see words that are in front of us. And and we tend to interpret those words in light of the circumstances that we're in. And we open up the Bible and say, God, give me a word for today. And what we're really saying is, I want to hear specific words that address my current circumstances in in the way that I would expect for the Lord to work today. And he's like, no, no, do you not remember? Did you not pay attention to what I did on my terms according to my own self-revelation? What I want to do is with the remainder of our time, I want to take two sections of what we read together. And I want to compare the Pharisees and a blind man. And in each case, we see Jesus bringing about eyes to see ears to hear, and to come to understand by faith to receive the bread of life. Let's go back and compare verse 11 with verse 22, okay? We're going to compare verse 11 and verse 22. Verse 11 says, The Pharisees came, began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. You mean like a sign that's different than the amazing things that have happened on both sides of the sea? Okay, but that's fine. He sighs deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He really offers it in the form of a a curse. Oh, a sign will be given, he says. So help me. The fact is, these Pharisees who come to Jesus, they're seeking a sign. But they're not seeking Jesus. If they would have sought Jesus, friends, listen. If they would have sought Jesus, the bread from heaven, they would have found him. All who seek will find. But they weren't seeking Jesus at all. They're looking for a fight. I wonder how many of us that really, that really defines really our religious experience. So much of what we have done in life is not seeking Jesus. We're looking for a fight. We have arguments and justifications. We have pains and hurts that we demand to be addressed today. You come with questions, but perhaps for some, the questions aren't really questions. They're actually thinly veiled self-justifications. Not all questions are that, but perhaps some. There's no real effort to see Jesus as he presents himself. There's always an argument. There's only a carefully laid series of challenges to the faith. That's not the story of all who are asking questions, but perhaps it's the story of some. So now you can see the cause for Jesus' is sigh. There will be no sign because you're not looking for Jesus. And if you saw a sign, all that you would see is the sign. If I entered into the argument, all you would see is the argument. But that's not the point of Jesus to argue. The point is to feed you himself. And so he continues on with the open presentation of the truth. Listen, if you come with a question or even a doubt that sincerely seeks the truth of Jesus, did you hear me? If you have a question, friends, there's a word I use that you're not supposed to use in church. We're supposed to be afraid of it because it's the great enemy of the faith. If you have a doubt, and you bring that doubt to Jesus, I am absolutely confident, according to the Scriptures, according to Jesus' own promise, you will find him. The one who seeks him, even doubting, lays their doubt before him. You will find him. That's a promise to cling to with questions and doubts. I pray that you will lay aside pretension. The idea that you don't have doubts. The idea that you don't have any questions. The idea that you weren't curious before you walked in this morning, is there really two accounts of this feeding? Ask the question. Honestly ask the questions of Jesus this morning. Honestly ask the questions in the context of the fellowship, in the context of the congregation, in community, over coffees and prayerfully before the word. And you will find something more like the crowds that were fed and the blind man that was healed than the Pharisees who Jesus literally left in their wake, in his wake. Jesus literally hops in a boat and leaves these Pharisees who were not seeking him at all in their wake to go and heal a blind man. Friends, there is so much that could be seen in this passage, but we need to keep on moving. Let's compare verse 11 and compare it with verse 22. Verse 22 they came to Bethsaida, Jesus and the disciples. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you sort of hear the necessary words to keep the story moving, but you miss the actual details of the account. Did you notice that there wasn't a blind man who came to Jesus? I mean, maybe your ears heard that a blind man came to Jesus, but that's not what it actually said, right? A blind man wound up before Jesus, but that's not what happened. Some people brought to him a blind man. And those same people begged Jesus to touch him. Do you know what we know nothing about except for that he was blind? The blind man. Did he want to be there? Did he have questions and doubts? Did he have any faith to beg with his friends that were begging on his behalf? We don't know. They're back on the Israelite side of the Sea of Galilee, and the man is simply brought to Jesus by friends. Up to this point, we have no evidence, no details that tell us about the faith of the blind man. Now, back at the end of our previous chapter, in verse 23, we read together, Jesus does all things well. I love that verse. It's so true. And he does it again. Last week, he touched the ears of a deaf deaf man. He sighed in a way that could be seen by the deaf man. He looks up from which the miracle of his healing would come. He looks up to heaven and he heals the man with a voice that were the first words the man could ever hear. Jesus does all things well. And today, we see Jesus take hold of a blind man He literally leads him out of the village. He touches him and he guides him, most importantly, in the process of healing and faith. Does the question about this passage that often gets asked, if you look at the details of it, is why a process? Why a process of healing? Why doesn't Jesus just do what he does in other places? You might remember there was one time that Jesus was just walking along and a lady touched the hem of his garment and boom, right? But even there, Jesus wasn't done. The process was one simple step, touch and healed. And yet Jesus still calls her out because he's not done with her. The healing wasn't the point. His point was to call her to himself. That's why there's a process for healing in this passage. I would argue this man is not ready to be healed. Because if this man was healed right away, all he would have would be sight. But Jesus does all things well. Each step in this process, Jesus is guiding the man, not so much in healing. Jesus is actually guiding the man in faith. Jesus begins by forming a dependent relationship by taking hold of him, leading him out of the village. Do you see that? Jesus goes over to the guy in the middle of the village and he takes hold of him. All right, Jesus nearly accosts the blind man, grabs a hold of him, and leads him out of the city. And what is the blind man at this point? Absolutely dependent upon Jesus. He's dependent as he leads him out of the city. He's forming a dependent relationship. He then forms an intimate relationship by touching him, even spitting on his eyes. I mean, you know, I'm, last week we said, I don't really get it all. But whatever he's doing, there's an intimate relationship that's going on in, in this. He's touching him. He's leading him. Prior to this moment, did this man have belief that he would be healed? And then Jesus gives him a portion of his sight. Now, if you, if you compare that, I, I think I was reading a commentary by uh, Kent Hughes. And he points out that if you were to compare the, the, the uh, experience of the friends who brought the blind man and the blind man himself to this experience of partial healing. When he looks up and he says, so what can you see? And he says, well, I can see like people, but they look like trees walking around, okay? His super blurred vision. The healing didn't work yet. And if you were with among the friends, you probably thought, oh man, we were hoping for real healing for our friend. We were begging you for it. And all we get is people walking around like trees. But if you're the blind man, and we have no evidence that he had any faith at all, and you're being dragged around by friends to meet some guy and you don't have any hope, been blind for too long to, to actually want to have any hope that you would ever see anything. But the man touches you, and he guides you, he leads you, he touches your eyes, and you can see light. You'd never seen light by this, like this for years, perhaps ever. His experience isn't, oh man, he has anticipation. You're asking me, did it work yet? You mean, you mean it might work at all? You see, what Jesus is doing is he's doing more than healing the man. He could have healed him the first time. He's creating an anticipation in the form of faith in this man. Something he had nothing of prior to Jesus' working with him. With some vision, though blurred, this man's anticipation rises. And Jesus has brought him to the threshold of faith. Finally, on the threshold of faith that Jesus himself has nurtured, cultivated, and called out of this man, Jesus brings home not only the healing, but he brings home the man's faith to restore the man's sight. The blind man now sees everything clearly. I would argue in Jesus' work in this blind man, this Formerly blind man sees everything more clearly than even his disciples did. You see, Jesus has nurtured faith. This section of Scripture, again, presents to us Jesus. And we see Jesus as the nurturer of faith. He's nurturing faith among crowds, right? And they're coming to him. They're looking for revolution. They're looking for healings and miracles. And even the Pharisees looking for signs. Looking for all kinds of things. But what does he give them? Crazy statements like, I'm the bread of life. He's nurturing in them faith in himself. And then he pulls his disciples To the side. He says, don't you see? I'm the bread of life for the Jew and the Gentile overflowing. Go with that word. He's nurturing faith. And with this blind man with no faith but friends, Jesus brings him clear-sightedness. He's bringing his disciples along with such powerful visual metaphors. He's warning them against the leaven of the Pharisees and against man-made religion and worldly ambition and the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He calls them to consider what they've seen, reflect and remember, and then he gives them a beautiful experience where he nurtures faith from no faith at all to clear-sighted faith. By the end of this healing, did the, did the disciples see that they are the blind man? Did they see that they needed to be taken hold of by Jesus, led by the hand, out of the ways of the leaven of the world, given sight by grace from one degree to the next with the hope of perfect, clear-sighted redemption? Do the disciples, do these disciples see that that's what we need? We need Jesus. I want you to see today that Jesus is the creator and the nurturer of faith. I said it in the prayer, right? He's the author and the perfecter. Probably my favorite, most precious scriptures, he who began a good work in you. Now there's a question. Question. Has he begun a good work? Have you you come to him in faith? Or are you still arguing, raging like the Pharisees? But for those of you who have come at all, for those of you that he has begun this good work, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let me tell you why that is such a precious gift of a verse for me. I've had a seedling faith in the Lord since childhood. Some of my earliest memories and certainly my clearest early memories are confessing faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin and a hope in him for everlasting life. I've always had a seed of faith but so much of my life and my guess is in a room like this perhaps with quite a few people of a similar story your earliest memories are in the church or maybe praying crying out to God for forgiveness of sin but along the way I've so often felt the burden that I needed to increase my faith that I needed to hold on to my faith, that I was the feeder and the nurturer of my faith. Or worse yet, I've laid a burden that it's a pastor's job or a parent's job or a friend's job to disciple me. My problem is I don't have good disciplers around me. But all along the way, by God's grace, I've become begun to understand that such an approach to our faith, is to have faith in our faith. To have our own faith as its own foundation. But you see, my faith is not in myself. I've known me too long. My faith is in the ground of the grace of Jesus Christ. And grounded there, I have a hope. He's a faith nurturer. He is a faith Peter. he will carry me on what's my business keep my eyes on him you see the journey of faith is a long one and there are those who have experienced many fits and starts you'll often fail to reflect you'll often fail to remember you'll show up at prayer and, and during the course of prayer of confession you'll be like i don't even want to talk about it god I already talked about it last week, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I have to talk to you about it again. But in Christ, our journey does have an end. You know, the journey of the growth of our faith is a fitting and a, many times filled with rage and sin and exhaustion. But our journey has an end. And at our journey's end, faith will become sight. And what will we see? The same thing that the blind man did. Jesus. Our faith will become sight. And I want to call you this morning, trust Jesus with your faith. Some here, particularly in the last year and a half that we have had, your faith is weary. You are tired. And you have more questions than you have answers. Trust Jesus. He will bring you to completion. I beg you, literally, follow the path of the blind man. Follow Jesus. Let him take hold of you. Follow him. Let him touch you. Let him instruct you. He does this by his word. He does this in the midst of his church. Don't be concerned that you don't quite see clearly yet. It's okay. Be amazed that you see it all. And then rejoice as he brings you from one degree of faith to another. Be amazed by the Jesus that you see and sing about what you've seen about him. And the day will come that you too, we too, church, will be brought to clear-sighted, face-to-face redemption. Heavenly Father, Today we confess whatever seedling, whatever exhausted, whatever distracted, doubting, arguing, hurt faith we have, we confess to you. And Lord, we trust according to your word that he who seeks you will find you. And Lord, this is a grace. I pray that you would feed our faith. You would nurture us. You would have compassion upon us. And that we would never stray far from the central reality of Jesus, the bread of life from heaven, given, even broken, for the forgiveness of our sin, that we might be reconciled to our God, forgiven and granted life in Christ forever. Bring us to yourself. This is our great hope. We long for the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for the one here who maybe has been brought by a friend. They didn't come here with faith. Perhaps they've drugged themselves out of bed for so many years, but they didn't come in expectation of meeting Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would begin faith, that you would begin confession of sin, that you would begin trust in you for your Forgiveness and your righteousness today. Uh, that one would cry out to you in faith today, Jesus. Our hope is in you. And so we pray in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.